Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Actually, I believe it was big swinging dicks. So there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some, I would suggest. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. I love the mansplaining. I'm enjoying it. What's mansplaining, Senator? Welcome to In the House and In the Senate. I'm Alicia Aiken-Radburn and we're talking to women in Australian politics about who they are, what they do and why it matters. Bridget Meany is a former political staffer at both a state and federal level. She's worked for Minister Ken Wyatt and former Minister Conchetta Ferraventi-Wells, as well as New South Wales Minister Anthony Roberts. Bridget now works for a not-for-profit professional body in the resources industry, managing policy and media. She's also a mum to a very cool and squishy one-year-old called Ted, and one of my best friends since meeting at Sydney University, where we contested ideas and drank far too much passion pop for any self-respecting person. Thank you for joining me today, Bridge. Now that you are out on the other side, you're no longer staffing. What does a standard day look like for you? So I still get up very early, which politics very much prepared me for. I know you'll know that, you know, you average only a few hours sleep on sitting weeks in Canberra, but it's quite similar when you've got a one-year-old. So get up early, get him sorted, feed him, get him to childcare, get to work. Um, I work in kind of uh, advocating for professional codes and standards for people working in the mining industry. Um, So do that all day. And it's a lot of face-to-face meetings and um, meetings with people working in resources um, as mining engineers and geologists and all that jazz, really cool, cool sorts of people. And then the day does not stop. I pick up Ted from childcare. I go home. I feed him. I bath him. We spend some time together, play. Um, But I feel like since leaving politics, although both are really long days, there's certainly a lot of flexibility in my day in that I choose what I make myself busy with um, rather than, you know, my job solely being what makes me busy. Um, I get to do a lot of different things. So, I, you know, still do media in the evenings on Sky News and ABC when I get the time and, um, yeah, just just get to do a whole host and host, host of things that I kind of never got to do in staffing 
Um, but yeah, definitely prepared me sleep wise. How have you found the experience of having a your first baby in the private sector? And not to hypothesize too much, but yeah, how have you found it in the private sector? And what would you have expected if that experience had happened while you were, let's say, working in Canberra? <laughs> well, firstly, I would have gotten about double the maternity leave in working in parliament and public sector. Anyone in, you know, departments get very generous maternity leave. Um, you know, it's not the same in the private sector across the board, particularly for not-for-profits. Um but, you know, that's just something that you plan in advance and, you know, was just happy to have a baby. So that's the first thing. Um, but also, you know, kudos to anyone who can do it. I think that I would be 20 weeks at least away from home a year. That's if I only did sitting weeks and travelled for sitting weeks to Canberra. Um, so I would either have to take my son with me, which some people do. I know I've got friends who have put their, their kids in Parliament House uh, childcare, which is really cute when you see them wandering oh through Parliament House. It's like, oh, what a weird experience for you being basically raised in this building with their little fluorescent vests. Um, and, you know, they're in there with like all sorts of MPs, kids and stuff as well, which is a funny experience. But, um, you know, when they get older, you really can't take them with you because they're in preschool and they're in school. And so it kind of you either are spending loads of time away from them um, or you're not working in politics and you're making that decision to, to leave, which is what we see people like Kelly O'Dwyer or Kate Ellis do. And they've spoken a lot about how hard it is for mothers when you're an MP, um, let alone when you're a staffer and you have significantly less yes. authority over your diary. Um, so I think it does sometimes become a bit of a ticking time bomb when you have kids. Um, it's long days. And a lot of women choose to prioritise other things um, than, than staying in parliament. Uh, so you'll find that a lot of staffers, there's a lot of single people, young people, um, and there's a lot of older people um, and particularly divorcees generally, oh. which is sad. Paints a lovely paints a sad picture. <laughs> it's, not, it's not all bad. Like... It's just like think about it. It's just it. the way that it is. Weeks, yes, twenty-two it, yeah. weeks at least away from your family. Logist- um, I don't it's think really that, hard. I don't think that people who aren't sort of aren't aware of like I don't think people get it. I don't think people quite get that. There, there is a lot of sacrifice that, you know, we hate, we love to hate on parliamentarians, but there is a whole heap of sacrifice that goes into serving your country in that way and yeah I don't know I don't know if I would want to ever would you go federal oh like I look at you know your average MP and how long they particularly if you're from like WA it's not always a direct flight you know I think there's one direct flight to Canberra a day if you don't get on it you're flying via Melbourne and that's if you come from Perth not if you come from a regional part of WA yeah you spend your entire Sunday getting there for a sitting week um, and that's if you're not a minister if you're a minister you're probably in some other part of the country when it's not sitting and it's a huge sacrifice and I think for anyone um, with a family or even just a spouse that they like to see. I mean, I like to see my husband <laughs> regularly, um, funnily enough. So, uh, you know, you can't, I don't begrudge anyone who just says no thanks. I, yeah. I think that 
you know, I, I kind of hoped that if COVID had taught us anything, it's that we can do a lot of things remotely and maybe we don't all need to be in Canberra 22 weeks of the year, but I feel, still think that's probably wishful thinking yeah. in this current time. Let's wind back the clock. Let's take it back to the beginning. Uh, what initially drew you to politics? And, you know, my usually when I ask this question, I say, what was your path to joining the party? But that's far too diplomatic. What I want to ask is, why the Liberal Party? <laughs> <laughs> well, I always, like, I don't come from a political family at all. Like, I was kind of the first member of my family to get involved in organised politics. Um, but I did grow up in a family that um, we did a lot of debating across the dinner table. So, uh, you know, there was a rule that we all had dinner together. Like you didn't get to say, oh, I've got homework, I'll have mine later. It was like we all sat at the table. And coming from a big family, disclaimer, I'm one of nine children, that's a really big discussion that you're having. And you would never dare bring an idea about the world to that table that you could not defend. Like you would be eaten alive and it was every person for themselves in these conversations. So I think even before I knew about organised politics, I knew um, kind of we spoke a lot about current affairs and where I sat on things. And I remember clearly um, I would have been in like year 10 and uh, it was the um, election of, John Howard and Kevin Rudd and my biology teacher telling me well, telling the class, which is totally inappropriate, that she was supporting Kevin Rudd because she just, she thought that we just needed a change. Like John Howard was fine, but he'd been there too long. And like this enraged me. I'd never thought about the Liberal Party, but A, I thought it was really inappropriate to be in a school, like a classroom of impressionable teenagers. And secondly, I was like, you know, but you can't list a single thing you don't like about John Howard. Like, at least tell me what it is. Like, change for change's sake sounds ridiculous. <laughs> like, we don't just kind of, like, you know, change things because we feel like it or it's been too long. Like, what's too long? Why fix what's working? And so I remember having this full-on debate with her and I don't even know really where it came from and took up, like, half the biology class. <laughs> but You're just trying to get out of some science. You're like, maybe, here we go, I'll yeah, run my mouth. <laughs> but it was just you know and it kind of yeah I suppose it put in my head you know started thinking more about politics long before I could even vote but probably wasn't until yeah I got to university that I ever joined a actual political party and what was that experience like like why like you rocked up at o day o week o day um you rocked up at o week no I ran a President couple. of the USU. <laughs> um, yeah, so you rock up at O Week and, you know, what was it? Like when you were walking down Eastern Avenue at Sydney University, what was it about the Liberal Party that just screamed out to you like, I need to be a part of that? <laughs> well, it actually wasn't at O Week that I joined. Um, I did in my first semester, I did like an Ozpol subject and – like I learned a lot more about political systems and how they all worked. And then, yeah, I kind of sought them out. I think it was like Rio Day, like that one they yes. hold in like the middle of the year. <laughs> um, so I don't even think it was O-Week. At O-Week I joined like Surge FM. Like, yeah, <laughs> me too. I My, had a uh, radio show in the uh, first semester. You yeah. were a big listener of Naughty Nighties with Alicia. I was. That's one right. Of my- I used to call in. One of my eight listeners. <laughs> so I didn't, yeah, it was really probably six months into uni um, and then went to kind of like a new members night. 
And then it was all, all uphill, I would like to say, from there. <laughs> what do you think were the passions that underpin that decision to put yourself out there and go to the new members' drinks? And, like, you know, I think we hear a lot about power in politics like was it a power thing for you were you like I want to be you know I often say uh young men join the young libs or young labor because they want to be a member of parliament because they want to be prime minister whereas I I find that women are generally a little bit more thoughtful so I was wondering what was it that actually like the issues like what did you want to change what did you want to get in there and fix I think that like the main thing for me was um, that frustrated me a lot was like overreach of government. I just thought the government just had fingers in every pie. How did that translate to your like, you're like 18, 19? How did you like? No, I think it was very much for me social issues as well. Like I just, I think government is way too involved in social issues. So for me, I kind of saw over-regulation. I was working at the time as a carer in um, uh, aged care and I could see, like, even just in terms of my employment, I, you know, could only work certain shifts. Even though I had the energy, I had the capacity, there were a lot of restrictions on my time as a worker um, that I just felt government had inflicted on me trying to earn money. Um at a time when I really needed it. Like I wanted to move out of home. I wanted to do a whole lot of things and I couldn't um, because I couldn't work the hours that I needed to work because of government restrictions. So that was actually a big thing for me when I was like 18, 19, obviously grew from there. um, But it directly affected my employment back then. And, you know, I was trying to heavily save, like I was desperate to move out of home. I was traveling an hour and 45 minutes door to door to university. Like I needed to get out of um, my parents' place in Cherrybrook, as lovely as it is, as welcoming as they are, it was too far to travel. So um, there were certain things impacting me at the time, but I was also a really self-aware 18, 19-year-old. Like it wasn't just about what was affecting me. I could see the world. I could see current affairs. Um, you've got to imagine at the time, like, uh, you know, you had quite a dysfunctional Labor government as well that had, I know in hindsight we talk about like leadership spills, everyone's got them, but at that time it was quite a dysfunctional government comparative to what we had had under John Howard. You know, I like a lot of people my age were the John Howard generation. We grew up knowing him as the only Prime Minister we ever knew and then we were thrown into this kind of uh, Gillard-Rudd turmoil, um, carbon tax, mining tax, all that kind of stuff was definitely part of the debate. So I think that, you know, I was able to assess issues that maybe didn't necessarily affect me at the time, but I knew where I sat on certain things. So that it didn't didn't always have a direct relationship to my life, but I don't think everyone going into politics is just there because something's impacting them. I think they're going in there because they're they're seeing a world that is fundamentally unjust and that needs changing. I mean, if people like us who are quite privileged now in the way, you know, we live our lives, um, we're not always directly impacted by things. (laughs) We're directly impacted by a lot less than other people. Um, You know, government policy changes will probably survive, but, you know, there are people out there who won't. There are people out there who struggle and, you know, things like 
the carbon tax that was $600 out of an everyday person's pocket, that said to that felt to me fundamentally unjust at the time. So I wasn't paying huge amounts of taxes. Um, it wasn't going to obviously affect me, but I do think that young people have a real social justice attitude to politics. I think particularly young women. And in terms of like wanting to actually be involved in politics in a way that it is my career or employment, that came a bit later. I think I was already really far in it before I knew I was even there to a certain extent. Um, It was actually a birthday card that one of my friends, Chris, wrote me on my birthday. It was, I think, my 21st. And he said, if you want this, you can do it. But he's like, you need to tell people that you want it and stop pretending that you don't. And I still remember this birthday card because it was like so, it was really direct for a 21st birthday card. (laughs) You know what? Like the Chris that we're talking about, Chris Rath, I just feel like he through his early 20s was just doing things so people can later reference it in parliament and be like, like, that will be in your inaugural speech. (laughs) He's just planting Easter eggs everywhere. He's a very profound guy, but yeah, that was my 21st birthday card from him. And I remember telling him, I was like, you're right. Like I've spent so long pretending that I don't want this or that I'm above it all. Um, And I think that's a really female trait to a certain extent. Like we don't ever want to admit that, you know, that we're ambitious in any way because we feel like there's a target on our back the moment that we say that. And it's just easier to be, um, you know, kind of uh, there for the social aspect and there to change the world and all these things that are very, but, you know, you'll go off and do another job and kind of not rock, not rock the boat or compete with any of the boys or, you know, strive for something better. Um, as long as you stay in that pocket, it's quite an easy involvement for you as a female in the party um, or in politics generally. So, you know, it is a big step that women I think, have to take to admit publicly to people that this is something that they want for their lives. I think that is so powerful. And I think that, you know, I'm I'm in my late 20s. I've even, I've like double, I've gone into politics and come out of politics and I'm still pretending. Uh, so I think that if there's like one takeaway, I think it is to, the blokes don't pretend guys guys put forward exactly what they want in a way that is like even absolutely cringe yeah it's so embarrassing <laughs> and i think i think if people knew the caliber of politicians across the spectrum oh my gosh they would be quite shocked and what that they're I just think, not very good <laughs> oh that either you know, I, I just think there are so many amazing Australians out there who don't consider politics because of um, the culture and the system under which it operates. And I think that that's a, that's a big shame because we're missing out on a lot of talent and we're missing out on a lot of female talent um, because of that. Because, you know, if you're a woman and you've got a stellar career, you know, are you going to take a, like, a fifth of your salary and run in the kind of ends of the earth marginal seat that some party, you know, apparatchik gives you and says, Hey, go for this one. Like, you know, a lot of blokes get given the safe seats 
they get given those ones that, you know, are never going to be lost. And um, that's quite frustrating to view. So I, I can completely see why we're missing out on a lot of talent um, because successful people are not going to put up with some of the disappointing aspects of politics. Do you think that your gender has impacted your progression and your experience in politics? Um, experience, yes, um, in that I think every woman in politics experiences, you know, to varying degrees, a very similar story. Um, I don't know, like I know it's a societal problem, like sexism, misogyny in the workplace, harassment, it is a societal problem. But I do think that there's an expectation that those leading the country, governing the country, are a bit of a cut above the masses. You know, I think that the expectation on behaviour should be higher and it's not. It's more or less on par. Um, Most of my experience has been in politics, so I don't know. I don't have a whole heap to compare it to in other sectors. I don't know what it's like, you know, working in the transport industry. a lot of I have comparisons in the mining industry, but they seem to be structural barriers rather than cultural barriers for women. Um, it's, you know, lack of access to female toilets on site. You have to walk a lot further. So it's really structural things. If it was structural and a matter of amenities, like we could fix things. We could fix it really easy and that's what, you know, the mining industry is finding, that the more they kind of change some of those um, amenity issues, the more women come into the sector. But I think. In politics, there is a cultural issue. I think that it's probably the biggest example of a um, system that is set up for men, um, 22 weeks away from your family. Um, you know, if you listen to Kelly O'Dwyer or Kate Ellis and the reasons they left as parliamentarians, you know, they talked about some of the things, really simple things they had to fight for, you know, not being able to get their babies and all the things they needed into one of the Holden Commodore Commonwealth cars that you get given as an MP. They were like, we need a Tarago. Like, yes. They're a family. These are just and practical things. So practical. And it goes, but- it's, it's that thing that you, like, I think a lot of women, it's it's just a little thing that I've seen reoccur that women will say that uh, they're freezing in their offices because the aircon is set for guys in blazers. Yeah, and I think that translates. You know, that's something that's sort of universal. But I think that that translates into a political context. Even simple things like I was I spoke to the Kate Jenkins review yesterday. Oh yeah, and um, I you know I think it's. I'm really actually genuinely, I think a lot of people are cynical about, you know, here's yet another review, but I felt heard. I felt that I was able to share my experiences in Mm. Parliament House and they were, and it was amazing because as I was speaking to these interviewers, I was just like, I had, I was having ideas pop into my head that, that made me think like, why aren't we doing that? I thought that like, the hours of sitting it's ridiculous like any other workplace is nine to five why Mm. is it that Canberra is like we'll start at two and we'll go to like 2am I tell you why and this is what I said to them I think that and this was the thing that struck me the first time that I went to Canberra I was like and I was we were fresh out of uni so we had just been to like 
uh, the National Union of Students National Conference down in Melbourne. The funnest time of my life. We, we, we're there. We're drinking, as I said, too much passion pop. We're having fun. We're being young. And then the next day we go on what was called conference floor. Let's, it's analogous to the House of Reps and we would talk about issues. And it was all very fun and light and a experience for nerdy 20-year-olds. But what shocked me when I went to Canberra was that these nerdy 20-year-olds have grown up into nerdy 50-somethings and it's the same. It's NUS National Conference in Canberra. It is, except probably less juicy in that I think people don't realise that, you know, 70 to 80% of motions on the floor are undisputed. Like they just, yes. they kind of go through their procedural matters. So it's almost less juicy than NUS because it's only like once a year that something good, juicy and divisive might come up in parliament. And it's usually, you know, to do with like, you know, reform of, of, of something or, you know, something, you know, huge legislative reform. Um, but yeah, most of it's completely undisputed. So it says to like, to me, I'm like, why, yeah, why do they have these strange hours? I know that they've capped it recently, but you know, why does anyone need to sit there till 10.30 PM in the Senate? It used to, they used to not cap it and you had to, the Senate didn't rise until every Senator had finished saying what they wanted to say. It's nuts. (laughs) Nuts. I'm like, cap it. So eventually I think they gave you know, it would be, I think you were capped at 20 minutes and um, basically they, they rise at 10 or 10.30 now. Um, they finish at 10, 10.30. But, yeah, it used to be until everyone had finished saying what they wanted to say. And let me tell you, Scott Ludlam, he can talk. He was there, <laughs> he was there every night finishing the Senate. Just he could talk till the cows come home about a whole lot of things and it's kind of like I think we have to match it up with Australians' expectations a bit. And do they expect, do they want to hear senators sitting there at 11pm talking about something? Like probably not. Probably not. not. Um, Bridge, I want to take you to uh, parliamentary culture. Obviously, uh, the last four to five months, basically this year, has been, I don't know how you felt it, I'd be interested to get your thoughts, but I found it quite jarring as a former staffer to hear the seemingly endless stories come out of Parliament House, but also know that, you know, I have stories, I'm sure you have stories, and I pretty much know, you know, I, I think it's, you can't really put a figure on it, but Many, many of the women that I've worked with in politics have stories. And so I was wondering how it's been for you seeing all of this come out, pour out into the media. I think jarring is definitely the right word. Like um, it was quite interesting. I was meant to do a TV interview kind of the day or the day after the Brittany Higgins stuff broke. And I was really upfront with the producers and I just said, I'm, I'm not ready to talk about it. And it's not because, um, it's not because I'm just avoiding or shying away. It's more because I'm still reconciling how I feel and what I think. And I can't do that live on air on a panel. Like I need to, I actually need to step away for like a week or two and process it. Like it's not, 
I didn't have an immediate reaction other than like horror. I just, it was really hard to process it all um, with my experiences of Parliament House and match everything up. I think in hindsight, like kind of looking back, it, I've got a sense of relief about it all because I think every woman knows these stories exist and you kind of hope that the reckoning is here a little bit, that how, and I, I find it interesting that and disappointing that so many, um, you know, politicians in parliament didn't foresee the avalanche of stories that were going to come after Brittany Higgins. They, I think a lot of them wanted to say, or maybe this is a once off. And that to me just shows that they didn't know what the everyday experiences of women in Australia were. And I think that, you know, we both know that this exists across the political spectrum. Like there's no party that's immune to it. Um, But obviously the, yeah, I'm like, this exists in every staffer I know, in every woman I know. And I kind of hope that there's, there's a continuing avalanche of stories to put a little bit of pressure on reform because yeah, I, I feel relief hearing the stories come out and, you know, seeing Brittany Higgins and reflecting on her story, I just, that could have gone a completely different way for her. You know, awful thing that happened. She's gone to the media because it is literally the only avenue open to women in that position. And she was undermined. She was criticised and Obviously, Australia is now at a place where her story was believed and it's it's kind of, I think it sent a really strong message to women all over Australia that, you know, Australia is not, Australia will back you. Australia will back you if something like this happens to you. Um, and I think it really showed a shift in sentiment of the everyday person and how we view incidents like this. Do you think the reckoning is here? Do you think, like, I, I'm i trying to unpack this every episode and I still don't have the answer? Um, I'm going to be optimistic and say yes. I think that it sent a really strong message to those um, in positions of power that this will not be ignored. This won't be ignored in the way that it might have been, in the, in the way I would have assumed it would have been in the past, to be honest. I would have totally assumed that it would have Why just been swept that under assumption? the rug. Because I think it's, <laughs> to be frank, I think it's an election issue. Yeah. I think how women feel about what happened in Parliament, the expectations people have of the culture of Parliament and what should occur and not should occur, what shouldn't occur anywhere, but particularly in Parliament, um, and, you know, we've seen marches all over Australia. I think that, well, at least from a Liberal Party perspective, um, we really need to capture more of the female vote and we're not going to be able to do it while we're not addressing very real concerns. So for me, you know, I think to be cynical, um, people are always going to do things, yes, hopefully because it's the right reason, but in politics, whatever side you're on, they're going to need to win votes. Yeah, I guess my, my, you know, the reason why, and I'm ever the optimist, like really, but I think that the thing from a practical perspective that I think is so hard to navigate, and this is probably less around 
the really egregious situations um, like Britney's but, and more to the, like, day-to-day. I don't really know the word for it. <laughs> Microaggressions is, like, the one thing that I can think of. But this, like, sexual harassment, undermining, belittling of women in the workplace, which I do think is amplified in Parliament House than any other workplace, um, I do worry, and I'd be keen for your perspective, Bridge, that because of the way that parties operate, loyalty, solidarity, um, and discipline, I worry about young staffers feeling empowered to go to an independent department of finance, which is, you know, we've seen informally, well, it's meant to be formal probably, workers HR in Parliament House. How do you think the HR element of like, you know, if something does happen to you, how do you think that that plays out in what's the new normal? Because, oh, I think what you're trying to get to is even if you made a complaint and then they started to dig into it, that would that affect, and you're saying it would probably affect your career progression. And I think that that's one element of HR and what HR can do. Um, one thing I would really like to see well, firstly, with the formation of any sort of HR in Parliament, disclaimer, there is no HR at the moment, but I think that there is no um, training of any of the senior staff. There is no um, understanding or training in just in general management terms how to manage staff. You go in as an assistant advisor, you might progress to advisor, senior advisor, principal advisor, but there's no actual professional development training that occurs between those steps. So you basically take on the attitudes of the people who supervised you when you first started and just, you know, utilise that experience on the people that work under you and there's no real kind of, yeah, management training beyond what, you know, anecdotal evidence on the job. And I think that's a huge problem because that would not be accepted in any other professional workplace. Um, So you've now got a whole lot of, you know, senior advisors with sometimes seven staff working under them who have no formal training. You've got MPs who have several staff working under them, but they may not have ever come from a job where they managed people or understood workplace expectations in terms of professional development and mentoring and things like that. So I think, yes, there's the complaints element of HR, but there's actually like the professional development element as well. I think that, you know, I actually think most staff want to do the right thing. They don't want to see um, huge cultural issues take hold of their workplaces and see it not be dealt with properly. I know so many staff currently working there who are absolutely rocked by some of the stuff that's happened in the last year and want to know how they can prevent it in future. And, yeah, I think that some sort of um, management training as you go through in terms of how to work with people and what kind of expectations are is pretty important as well. Bridge, I want to wrap up with one last question. I've loved this chat. Um, For young people, young women listening to this podcast that are like, that that think, you know, that that don't want to pretend anymore, that want to dive in that could see themselves contributing 
to society through being a parliamentarian or through being a staffer? What is your advice? Because it can be pretty, it's hard. Like, what's your advice to get past that? I need it. How do I, how do I get past the pretending and into the doing? Uh, honesty. Don't ever be afraid to tell people that you want it. Um, they'll never know to help you if you never say that you want it to begin with. Um, so honesty up front. And secondly, I think particularly in the Liberal Party, there is no clear path to politics. We don't have the unions. We don't have progression through union movements. You can literally come from anywhere and be an MP eventually. So I think don't let people tell you there's a game to play because there isn't. You don't have to play it and you can go off and do your own thing. You can be a, you know, a Dave Sharma who's ambassador to Israel and then comes back to Australia to be pre-selected. You can be a Fiona Martin who is a child psychologist. You can dedicate your career to other things while maintaining your involvement. There is no clear path. You can choose your own um, and stay involved. Thank you so much, Bridget. I have thoroughly enjoyed our chat and I'm leaving feeling inspired. Oh, good. I'm glad. (laughs) Thank you, my love. No worries. Talk soon. In the House and in the Senate is recorded on the land of the Wadjuk people. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you enjoyed this episode of In the House and in the Senate, please jump into your podcast app, subscribe and give me a quick rating and review. This will help the podcast reach more people and I will personally be incredibly grateful. Also, be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram at In the House in the Senate, where I'll be sharing content from our guests, throwbacks to my time in staffing and resources to help you get more involved in the political system. You can also follow my personal account at alicia.akenradburn. Thanks for listening and speak to you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye to Liz. <laughs> next question. <laughs> See ya. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.